Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah, a registered associate nutritionist and your favourite crazy bean. Full of Beans is on a mission to reduce eating disorder stigma and increase eating disorder awareness. Together, we will establish inspiring conversations with a range of individuals, including those with personal experience and their loved ones, as well as clinicians, researchers and charities who are all working to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Using my personal battle with atypical anorexia and body dysmorphia, as well as my Masters in Eating Disorders and Clinical Nutrition, we will together explore the experiences of like-minded individuals who are equally as passionate about sharing their stories to increase the understanding of eating disorders. Please note that this podcast discusses sensitive topics and should not be seen as a replacement for evidence-based therapy or treatment. Today we are joined by Zoe Burnett, a motivational speaker and author who has lived experience of eating disorders, PTSD, anxiety and depression. Zoe is extremely passionate about rebelling against social norms, ditching diets and is also a strong advocate for the set point theory. Zoe joins us today to discuss her experience with atypical anorexia and managing an eating disorder during pregnancy, as well as explaining set point theory to bring a scientific aspect to ditching diet culture. Hello Zoe. Good afternoon, how are you today? Yeah, I'm good thank you, how are you? Love, oh the sun's shining, there's daffodils in the garden, what's not to love? Oh amazing, I think I was saying to my boyfriend earlier, he was like, oh daffodils are nice but they don't last very long, but it's the start of spring, like you know it's coming now, you know the summer's coming. Exactly, a little bit of hope hey? Yes, we all need it at the moment don't we? So thank you so much for joining us today. It's really nice to have you on the podcast. I wondered if you wanted to start by just explaining your journey with your eating disorder for us. My journey started really when I was quite young. Well, Mm -hmm. a teenager really. It started when I was around 14. Mm. Although I didn't actually get diagnosed until I was 26. Wow, okay. So throughout my whole life, every time something terrible happened every time I was faced with trauma or something that I just didn't know how to deal with I'd kind of turn to the eating disorder as a way to cope right but then my weight would fluctuate so much because I engaged in so many unhealthy behaviors it mm. it never I was either one or the, it was just chaos and then if you imagine a balloon though there's only so many times that you can kind of engage in those sort of behaviors and so many times you can avoid situations and try and bury dramas and bury things by using it and eventually I was just filling a balloon if you like yeah. it was just getting bigger and bigger until eventually it popped and when I turned to eating soda when I was 26 it everything just exploded and come out and poured out really oh and so did you when you turned 26 was that the point where it exploded and then you went for like therapy or yeah so basically what happened is I was still adamant it was just a diet it's fine I'm actually fine as you do and it was actually my husband that was like no Zoe no and um we sat down one evening we talked and I was like actually I think you might be right here so I went to the GP and I said look I'm really and I told him everything that I was doing and he um he actually said to me, he was like, oh my goodness, yes, this sounds like an eating disorder. I'll tell you what, we'll get you a third, we'll get, we'll get your BMI done, and then we'll go from there. So he did my BMI, and then his whole attitude changed. 
literally he sat there and he went oh you're not slim enough to have an eating disorder um i was collapsing daily at this point right and he told me to drink a full fat can of coke a day to stop me from collapsing and sent me on my way and i was just like okay and that made me so adamant that i didn't have a problem yeah i was adamant now i was like no doctor said i'm fine i'm fine you're overreacting james sorry james my husband's name <laughs> so from that point on bless his heart he he had such a battle but then about a month later i ended up in hospital with heart failure so <laughs> and then i got referred but it shouldn't have got that far i should have been able to receive the help when i went in to the doctors no, not I- fobbed off and I think that's, unfortunately, from doing this podcast, I've noticed that's quite a common issue in that so many people will go to the doctor and then it's the whole weight thing again and that you know, you, you're not sick enough, you don't weigh <laughs> low enough sort of thing. And I think it can be really damaging, but do you think there's a weight stigma within eating disorders or, you know, when you go to the GP? It is so heartbreaking to see, but yes, it is so damaging. I was so lucky with the service that I was under. Um, and it is very much postcode lottery because we didn't get a referral through the doctors. We phoned the um, eating disorder service directly okay. and they said weight doesn't come into it. And they was able to kind of yeah. tell us how to get referred that way. But if we was waiting on a doctor, I, I would be dead. Sorry, but I would. I wouldn't have yeah. survived. But what was interesting is, naturally, I am quite broad. Mm. I surf, I swim. My whole family is quite broad. I'm not going to. So because I was very overweight when um, I originally went into the doctors, even though I'd lost a significant amount in a small time, I was praised. He praised me as well. He went, oh, well done for losing weight. I was like, yeah, but you know how I'm doing this. I've just sat and explained to you what is going on, but he just didn't care. And it was just so... Well, I look back now and it, it hurts. Mm. And it really bizarre, hurts. It? Because, you know, I know that they only have one or two hours of training, but, you know, you think if you sat down and explained all of those behaviours, then, like you say, it's bizarre how he went from being really concerned for you, then all of a sudden took your BMI and said, there's not an issue. Um, it was literally exactly how you described there. It was like, really, really concerned. Oh, no, flick yeah. of a switch almost. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned that you were diagnosed with atypical anorexia, um, which is part of the OSFED category for eating disorders. So would you mind just explaining to everybody, because I think it is a bit more heard about, but for you know people that maybe don't know a lot about eating disorders, I think there's still a lot of confusion around that. So could you just describe um, what OSFED is for us? So OSFED stands for Other Specified Feeding and Eating Disorders. Yeah. And basically... We are. This is where I get a little bit on my high horse, so I do apologise. But we are all so unique and different. Mm. We're not all going to fit into one box. And like I said, I was forgive me, but I ticked every single box for anorexia except for the weight. Yeah. So because of that one last box, I was then put into this category, which I don't mind. And would you mind just explaining what the difference is between atypical anorexia and then anorexia nervosa? The weight. Well, for me anyway. From that, from obviously. Atypical, I, like I said, I had every single other physical symptom as well as emotion, because at the end of the eating disorders are mental illness. All the thinking styles fitted anorexia perfectly. Mm-hmm. It was purely because I was in an obese body to an overweight body, as opposed to normal weight to underweight, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's the only difference. 
And so just for people listening, so the other things, the boxes that Zoe's saying she needed to tick include an intense fear of weight gain. So sort of engaging in behaviours that can control your body weight and your body shape. And then also maybe a disturbed perception of yourself and also really valuing yourself based on what you look like in terms of your weight and shape. And then also like, you know, how as Zoe said, a lack of recognition of the potential eating disorder that is there. And then... The last one is the restriction of energy intake causing a low weight. And I think that one is always the one that gets me because it's not even like you ticked two out of three boxes. You ticked literally like two and a half because you were restricting, you were fainting and all of this. So it's literally a minuscule amount. But for some reason, it seems to be the biggest proportion that people focus on. It is. It's like I said, I lost my periods and everything as well. And when you do starve your body, your body will eat itself. Yeah. I know that sounds gross, but it does. Obviously, your body has to find energy from somewhere. Mm. So for me, it did attack the muscles around my heart. Yeah. And that's, like I said, that's how I ended up with my heart failure. But it just, to say that it's not as serious or it's not to be taken seriously just because I was living in a lot larger body was awful because I wouldn't, I know that I wouldn't have made it to that underweight yeah. category. Like I said, my heart would have given up long before. Yeah. My weight was deemed low enough to be able to access help. And that is what is scary. And I think it is scary because, so when I was doing my master's, we didn't really talk about atypical anorexia, but there was a big focus on anorexia. But I remember I did ask the question of why do we need that distinction? And and the distinction is because of the medical complications that could potentially occur with anorexia nervosa. And so that's why, you know, people might be admitted to hospital so that they can have medical monitoring. But you're living proof that you don't have to be at a significantly low weight for these issues to happen. And I think in in one sense it can be quite damaging to have that atypical anorexia because you just think oh well there's nothing wrong with me I'm just you know struggling to eat a little bit so how do you think that word atypical affected you honestly I'm not a fan <laughs> I'm not a fan eating disorders are quite a competitive illness anyway yeah. looking back I can see that now but at the time I couldn't but I'm able to reflect and it did make me a little bit more competitive and it did make me go oh well I'll show you and it did make me worse. I'll be honest. Again, looking back, I can see that now. But it was so, oh, I just, I, I truly believed that I wasn't sick enough then to be taken seriously. It's like, oh, well, it's not anyway. Oh, I'm fine then. Oh, I'll just carry on a bit longer and a bit more and keep pushing. And I didn't see the danger in it. And did you end up getting help in the end for the eating disorder? I did. I was so, so, so fortunate. So fortunate. Um, I'm living in Lincolnshire and... Lincoln have the most incredible eating disorder service. So I entered a day program three times a week. I had dietitian support and they also had a psychologist appointment once a week mm. where we worked on untangling all the wires, if you like, that led to me developing it. The trauma work, we did so much. And community support as well. I think it's absolutely vital. I had a community support worker that would, would like go out to Costa together and practice community eating and all of a sudden I was at work working 40 hours to not working at all and doing pretty much full-time eating sort of therapy it was it was crazy but so so good and what do you think was so good about it you know what I will praise my community support worker until I'm blue in the face <laughs> both of them the day because they ran the day program as well on right. Monday Wednesday Friday and then Tuesday and Thursday you could have community support appointments and they had lived experience both of them 
So when I was sat in Costa, bawling my eyes out over whatever it was I was challenging myself that day, I knew I look I could look at them and they they knew. They understood. So nothing that I said would be surprising to them if that makes sense. Yeah. I could be my honest self. I could say exactly what that edge voice was screaming at me. And they was able to go, Oh yeah, I, I remember that. And just having that level of empathy, you can't always teach that I don't think Mm, yeah and I think that can be really important because sometimes I think it's very difficult for people to understand what thoughts are going on in your head like you know it's it's just whatever just eat it sort of thing but having I guess that support did that make you also think maybe there is an issue because these people are now understanding whereas you maybe had that lack of understanding from the GP which is what led you to think yeah there isn't an issue the second I entered treatment the second I think the first hour of the programme, I was in tears nearly because oh. I realised that, oh, because I was in the room, um, obviously I won't go into details, but there was two other people with anorexia mm. in a room and then me. And I was, at first, I was sat there going, I don't belong here, I don't look right now, I'm fine, leave me alone, what am I doing here? Yeah. But I'd promise to go and try it, you know, for my husband. Mm. And within an hour, I sat there and I was like, oh, they think like me. Everything I'm saying, they they understand, and yeah. oh oh, and it was like a big penny dropped. And at the end of that day, my support worker was like, "Are you alright?" I was like, "I don't know. I think I've got a problem." He was like, oh, "Really? <laughs> <laughs> you think?" <laughs> but yeah, it it just yeah, it really opened my eyes. And how do you think we go about tackling the weight stigma that is present? Because I think I've noticed it especially over the past few years. People are really starting to talk up about the fact that they weren't taken seriously for their eating disorder because of their weight. I don't think it's just a problem necessarily of healthcare professionals, but also of the general population because diet culture has become so ingrained. So how do you think we even start to tackle that? Oh, well, you said it yourself, didn't you? A minute ago, you said people like ourselves are starting to speak up mm. and talk and that is one of the biggest things because I will be completely honest I used to be one of those people that get oh you can't have an eating disorder you're not you know you're not slim enough I used to believe the stereotypes because that is what we would see in the media yeah. so I was very very fortunate to be able to share my story with ITV calendar mm. and BBC and I've been on a fair few channels now just saying you don't actually have to be underweight to have an eating disorder and every time I finish doing interviews or I've done radios, everything, I'll always have messages in my inbox from people that have tracked me down and gone, oh, it just needs more people like ourselves just to speak up and go, actually, you don't have to have that weight category. You don't need to be underweight. They don't have a look. Eating disorders affect everyone. It's not about the weight it is a mental illness and if your thoughts every day are just so focused and it's driving you around the absolute bend of course you deserve help and you know just in, if, if someone is listening and they may be sat there thinking wow this sounds really like me but I maybe don't have the confidence to go to my GP because I am scared that they're going to say I don't weigh weigh little enough or what have you what sort of advice would you give to people so that they can go well equipped to the GP and say you know I actually do need help and I know that I need help I'm pleased you've asked this actually BEAT which is I'm sure most people have heard of BEAT but it's the UK's leading eating disorders charity on their website they have got a leaflet that you can take with you to the GP and you can download it because this is what I ended up doing in the end as well. Mm-hmm. But you can download it 
print it off at home and take it with you literally that's what we did in the end it's like here you go and all the information about eating disorders is on this leaflet about you don't know you need to be underweight yeah so i print that off take it with you also nice and i see have some guidelines as well okay. that you can print off that say again you know that you don't need to be underweight it's not a you don't need to have that criteria to be diagnosed or to get support from specialist eating disorder services so again, highlight it, print it off, just take a little bit of evidence with you and go, there you go. And don't leave until they give you a referral. Yeah, <laughs> Be stubborn. And take think, someone with you. I was just going to say, I think that is probably like the, aside from taking that evidence and stuff with you, so you are backed up, having somebody there, because it may be a difficult situation, it may be a difficult conversation, but also I think to have somebody there that knows you, that could also say, yeah, they are doing the specific behaviours it is a challenge day to day I think like that will really help so just talking about weight on your TED talk which was fantastic and everybody listening should go and check it out because it was a brilliant talk you spoke about set point theory and how your body like a lot of people wasn't meant to be a low weight so could you just describe the science behind set point theory for us Oh, I'd love to. <laughs> set point fairy, fairy, hmm. set point fairy. Bringing some glitter. <laughs> of course, it's become my absolute favourite thing to educate people on. Yeah, it is the best kept secret that the dieting industries do not want us to know. Yeah. So if we all realised about it, and if we all knew about it, it would go bust overnight. <laughs> the set point fairy is basically where your body functions best at. Right. We are all unique. We are all different. We're not all the same shoe size. Mm -hmm. We're not all the same height. So we're not all going to be the same body type, are we? Which is where the BMI really falls because we're not all designed to fit in that little bracket, which is normal. So set point theory, if you you overeat, for example, one day, your body will do things naturally to bring your weight back down. So I always use Christmas as an example. (laughs) I live on cheese and red wine at Christmas now. (laughs) That's fine. But I know I'll gain weight at Christmas absolutely fine because I know in January when I return back to normal living when I've you know I kind of crave normal foods by then because I've about had enough cheese I start craving vegetables when I come back on holiday but it's your body you know it will bring you back down to your set point naturally by doing these things your metabolism speeds up and your hunger signals slow down so you naturally eat differently anyway however when you start to undereat when you restrict and start to engage in these different dietary behaviours, your body starts to rebel because it doesn't like it. It's, it doesn't want to be starved. It doesn't know. It likes to be in its set point. So you're pushing it almost. And you'll start to recognise that your hunger signals raise. You become preoccupied with food. Um, you're thinking about food. I used to walk into the kitchen, open a cupboard and just look at it because I was so preoccupied with it. And the physical elements as well, if your metabolism starts to slow down, you feel colder, you can't concentrate as well. That's your body. It's trying to preserve energy because it's below its set point. It's below where it needs to be. It's trying to be, it's trying to get you back up to your set point, if that makes sense. So what is healthy for one person isn't necessarily healthy for you. Like I said, my set point is upper end of overweight. But when I was a normal weight, I wasn't having periods. My heart was failing. I was cold. I was miserable. I wasn't living my life. But now I am, it's settled now. Again, childbirth can alter it, but it's settled back down. 
I am overweight, so I'm being attacked by the government at the minute. <laughs> but I'm having periods. My heart's not in danger. I am well. I am full of energy. I am full of life. You've kind of got to ask yourself, what is actually more important? Do I want to keep trying to rebel against that set point, rebel against my body's natural weight and live my life crying over birthday cake? True story. Or do I actually want to accept that, okay, actually, I'm in a larger body, but my body works and my body functions. And that is surely more healthy than whatever that BMI chart says. And I think it's crazy, isn't it? Because you do hear so much about how you need to be a healthy BMI or there's posts on Instagram that show these, you know, bodies that we as a society have said are like the ideal body type and stuff. I do question, you know, the positions people put themselves in. You know, some people, yes, will sit at a normal BMI and some people will sit at a low BMI and that will be healthy for them. Exactly. But... What is healthy for them? Exactly. You've hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. And it's all about what is healthy for us. And I think that's something that we've massively got to learn. But it, again, it's it's like the weight stigma. It's so ingrained into us. Do we even start? You know, it's fantastic that you're having this conversation and speaking up about it. And hopefully people will take that. And I think the thing I really like about this as well is it, you're not just saying accept the body you're in because it's is you know that's what you should do there's science behind it as well and definitely when the science behind it I'm like well science doesn't lie so yeah but you know it's like where do we even start again it is so hard isn't it and I have become oh so annoying I think at work (laughs) because whenever anyone tells me um that they've started a particular diet which I won't name because I don't want to get in trouble but that you have to pay to do I'm just sat there going, you do know that's got a 95% failure rate, don't you? And I always ask this question, how many times have you tried that diet? Yeah. And I can guarantee the answer's more than once. Yeah. I'm like, oh, so it didn't, so what happens when you stopped doing those behaviours? Oh, you put it back on. Yeah. Oh, so your body went back to its set point, did it? And then what happened? <laughs> oh, well, I paid, I paid to do the diet again. Oh, so you paid more money to lose weight to then gain it back again. Yeah. To let your body, and they look at me like, oh, because... I think they know I'm right but they don't like to admit it yeah. because it is so ingrained into us it's exactly. hard it is so hard and it's funny actually because I was um chatting to my mum the other day and I'm sure she won't mind me saying this but she was saying that when she was younger she did a, like various diets every time she'd do a diet it wouldn't work she felt like she'd failed but it was her fault that it didn't work that is exactly what I was going to say it's not you failing the diet it is the diet failing Definitely. you because yeah. they're not designed to work yeah. sorry because they're they're money making schemes at the end of the day aren't they they're not they're not people there to help you they are making money out of it so of course it's not going to work it might it might work initially but it's never going to work long time because then they're not going to have clients coming back to them all the time no i look back now how old am i <laughs> 28 but I look back over the last 20 years of my life and I realized that I've missed out on so many opportunities really because I was trapped in you know the way of eating disorder style of thinking and very disordered eating patterns and diet culture I guess but there's been so many times where I regret not doing things because it involved food and it's just like I'm looking here and I'm looking forward to the next 28 years of my life and I'm like no I'm not no I'm not doing it again I'm sorry, but there's so much more to life than trying to manipulate 
my body into something it's just not genetically designed to be and this is something we've spoken about before on this podcast to me I like eating disorder recovery when I was in recovery was all about being able to go out for dinner and not care or whatever but actually I think what it is is it's being in the moment and being present and not thinking oh god I've got to go out for lunch later and I don't want to go it's thinking oh my god I'm gonna see my friend later I'm so excited it's spontaneous as well it's like just before we started recording this my husband said to me oh we'll go out for a walk so we went out for a walk and then he said oh should we pop to uh Daisy Maid, which is like a little ice cream parlor where I live and should we have an ice cream and I was like yeah let's have an ice cream mm-hmm. and it wasn't until halfway through I was, I was eating this ice cream and I was like oh Ed hello bye-bye <laughs> <laughs> like the fork come in and it you know it went because that's kind of where I am in recovery at the minute but it was just being able to live in that moment and go yeah great let's do it and it was so lovely exactly and I think that is that is the best thing about it it's not caring being able not to do things spontaneously and just being present with people and I think everybody else notices as well that you're just so much more engaged in conversation not panicking so yeah I think that is really special so something else that I wanted to talk about with you today was your pregnancy because I think I personally found it really inspiring that I saw on Instagram you know you'd posted to say that you did struggle when you were pregnant with gaining Mm -hmm. weight um, and stuff like that and I think There's a lot of pressure, certainly around when women get pregnant, you know, a lot of changes happen. And so I think it's really amazing that you have spoken out and said that you did find it difficult because I think most people think, well, you're having a baby, like that should be the most important thing. But I think it's natural for those thoughts to creep back. So I just wondered if you wanted to explain to us kind of what happened whilst your pregnancy in terms of your eating disorder. Yeah, of course. It was quite... It was quite remarkable, actually, that I was able to fall pregnant because I was told that I was never going to have kids because of the damage that the eating disorder had done to my reproductive system. So we'd started, we decided that we did want a family and we'd started tablets and we'd seen specialists and I was due to start IVF in February and I fell pregnant in January. Oh, wow. (laughs) So I'm not going to lie, I think I did about 12 tests in the end. Oh, my God. (laughs) It cost us a small fortune because I did I did one and I was like, next, it was a cheap one. I was like, no, 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 I'll do a proper one. So I did a more expensive one and it tells you the weeks. And I was like, oh, so I did another one. And then I ran out, so I made James go buy some more. <laughs> and it took me about a week to actually process that, oh, my gosh, this is this is happening. Mm. And I just, I just remember the day where it sunk in and I just fell to the floor and absolutely floods of tears with my husband. And we was like, this is happening. And then a few days later, it kicked in that, this is happening because <laughs> as morning sickness started to hit those bulimic urges that I struggled with was quite hard because obviously I was being yeah. being sick and it was like oh you're being sick and it's like no that's not good Zoe yeah. you know now I need to make sure that I refuel and not think of it as a that positive almost that the again that bulimia used to tell me mm. So it's quite hard just to navigate the simplest of things. And then obviously my body grew. Of course it did. I could completely accept my belly growing. It looked like I'd swallowed a massive pumpkin towards the end. But that was fine. What I couldn't deal with, <laughs> that's my ass getting big as well. My legs getting bigger. Everything just ballooned. It's like my backside could have put Kim Kardashian to shame by the end. <laughs> it, was, it was quite impressive. It really was. But no one explained to me why this was happening. So I realised it is down to hormones and it's down to the hormone relaxing. But if someone had actually just sat and kind of explained what... Again, I like science. I like to know why. So once 
you know, it was explained why these things were happening. I could accept it. And I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. But you are right. There was so much pressure on bouncing back. And I remember, I didn't lose my temper, but I remember this woman in Tesco. I was about eight and a half months pregnant. I was about to pop. And this woman was asking me how I planned to get my baby, my post-baby body back. And I did a video on this and it is on my Instagram. But I was just looking at it like my body back. And it really wound me up because there's something about that phase, my body back. My body's not been anywhere. I am not a floating head. I still have a body. <laughs> I was like, my body, and it just really frustrated me. I was like, my body has changed, but so has my life. Yeah, my body's never going to be the same. Exactly. My yeah. body's never going to be what it was. I don't need my body back. I have a new body because I've created this new life. And I imagine there were quite strong eating disorder thoughts there, and especially with other people commenting. So how did you sort of manage and navigate those thoughts during your pregnancy? It's quite strange because Ed manif- Sorry, I call eating disorder Ed for sure. I'm, I'm very imaginative like that, clearly. <laughs> but Ed kind of found new ways to torment me almost mm. so I was eating very well because I had this life and I felt so hungry all the time because it was, she was quite a little live wire so she had you know I had to make sure I was sticking to good meal plans but Ed manifested himself so instead of being so focused on what I was eating why I was eating it was more I need to make sure that I'm eating so many fruit and vegetables a day because little one needs those vitamins it manifested in something completely different and I didn't actually realize that the way I was thinking, even though I wasn't restricting or engaging in my original ed patterns, my way of thinking was still very disordered. And it was weird. Now, look, now I didn't realise. Looking back, I can see it. And I'm like, ah, so Ed was there, just in a different way than what he's been there before. Oh, you sneaky little thing. I see what you did there. I think the thing that got me, and it's not funny, so I hate to use the word funny, but it is fascinating, how if you had somebody in your life who was really manipulative, they would do everything and anything to stay in your life. And I always thought how strange it was, how realistic those eating disorder thoughts were, and they're just so logical. For me, it was powerlifting, so I transferred my eating disorder into powerlifting, and I was like, okay, now I've got to eat protein. I can't eat carbs or fats, but I have to only massively go crazy on protein. But I think it's having that awareness, like you did with your pregnancy, and that, oh, maybe Ed is sneaking back in a little bit, because there is the potential of developing really disordered eating behaviours if you're not thinking, hmm, these could be eating disorder thoughts. It is so manipulative, and like you said, it is just... Oh, this sounds so cheesy and I hate it when people tell me I'm self-aware. It drives me up the wall. But it is just having that self-awareness. Cringe, I know, I'm sorry. But it is. But you know what? I'm not sorry that I did fall a little bit after I'd given birth. I'm not sorry that I've relapsed because it's just taught me so much more about this disorder and how much actually it can sneak in. When you let one little behaviour in, oh my goodness, can you snowball quick? (laughs) So it's made me realise that, oh... I thought I was pretty recovered when I was pregnant and after Rosie, but actually, hmm, was I? So it's really kicked me up the bum now to go, no, you know what, this is it now. Let's do this and let's do this properly. And so what sort of things do you do in order to challenge those thoughts? One of the things actually that, this sounds again so cheesy, forgive me, but one of the things I do struggle with is, obviously my stomach area looks completely different to what it's ever done, but I grew a life in there, so hey ho which is amazing but, exactly <laughs> but um I've got the most oh I've got so many stretch marks now mm. I had some anyway because obviously when you um when I gained weight and eating sort of recovery I developed a few stretch marks then 
But now I've just got so many quite my stomach and on the top of my legs. But I don't call them stretch marks anymore. I do call them my rosy lines. My daughter's called Aww. Rosie. I call them my little rosy lines. And I look at them now as her first bit of artwork on me, if that makes sense. So now when I look at them, I, ca- I can't hate it. I can't hate them because that is my daughter's first artwork. So it's just like, I want to hate them, but I can't. So it's like, ha, take that, Ed. <laughs> you know, and it's just, everyone's different. And it's just finding those little little things to challenge it with. And it's like um, I said, I did fall, obviously, after having Rosie a little bit because it was so, we're in a lockdown as well, which didn't help. Mm. Me, mum, lockdown, I've lost two loved ones. Yeah, I'll give myself a bit of credit. But I kind of look back and I realised how how much harder it was when I was trapped in that eating disorder and trying to raise a newborn. You know, it, I made it so much harder for myself by not fueling myself properly. Now that I'm well again, if you like, the amount of energy I've got... <laughs> To deal with those teething tantrums that we're currently having. <laughs> Teething's great fun. But teeths, <laughs> the, you know, all the things that comes with a newborn. Now that I'm fueling myself properly again, it's not, it's not so hard. Yeah. I, I can manage it so much better. So it's just having that evidence to go, oh yeah, this is why I'm doing it. And logging it somewhere, writing it down somewhere so I can look back and go, oh yeah, that's why I'm, you know, that's, this is why I'm doing this too be able to have that energy and spend time with it and go for ice creams today and I think that's why it's so shocking when people are so focused on bouncing back like you said earlier to their pre-body weight well that's all fine if that's what you want to do but like you said teething feeding all of that it takes so much energy and as we know when you're at the depth of an eating disorder you don't have the energy to smile let alone raise a child so I think you know, if people want to lose weight, because that's where they will feel comfortable, that's great. But it shouldn't be the main focus of when you've just had a child. And it definitely shouldn't be something that people, random people in the street are asking you, you know, when are you going to bounce back? Yeah, exactly. And I'll tell you a story, actually, and forgive me if I do get emotional, but I, <laughs> emotions, I'm feeling them now, because that was one of the things with eating disorders, it did block out any yeah. negative emotions. So forgive me. But I remember when she was, she must have been about four weeks old. Mm. She was was just kind of happy in a bouncy chair, not really doing anything because I don't do a lot at that age. So I thought, oh, you know, I've got to do, I've got to make sense. I've got, I've got to lose this new mum body. I can't deal with it. So I started engaging in behaviours and I glanced over and she was watching. And that hurt. And that was a big kick up the bum. Because I was like, sugar, what, what is she? No, no, I cannot. I can't do it. If she goes up hating her body because she's watched me hate my body, I, that is hard to admit. But I also work in the nursery and I'll never forget. I used to work in preschool, but I'll never forget there was one day and there was a group of three or four kids. They were singing and dancing to Frozen in the mirror mm-hmm. with the hairbrushes. It was so cute. But I remember one of them starting to pull at the belly and um, they started talking about diets. These are three-year-olds three to four year olds started talking about diets that the mummy was doing and that auntie so-and-so said that they was getting tubby and that's bad and it's the worst thing in the world and my heart shattered because I was fairly into eating disorder recovery at this point so I knew you pick out these things I think when you're in recovery you're quite tuned into it and that broke my heart so again putting all these experiences together it's like I am determined to raise this kid in the most body neutral way that I possibly can Mm. teach her 
that all food has nutritional value that there's no good or bad food that food does different things to our bodies and again i use this in practice as a nursery practitioner i'll say things like oh yeah we need to drink our milk because milk makes our bones really strong and it's not cool and oh yeah chocolate's fun to eat that's fine we can eat some chocolate because it's fun broccoli as well you know it looks like trees but it makes us gives us some energy and you know i kind of talk about what the food does instead and it really does keep you so focused on recovery yeah because i grew up with family around me trying to my sister was constantly on a diet <laughs> taking pills and all sorts to try and change her shape and try and change her size I think it's difficult isn't it when we're you know in the society that we are but I think you're so right and I mean I hopefully I'm not going to have children for a very long time but I have said to myself already that when the day does come I know that I want to be in a mindset where that little girl or little boy is going to be raised in such a neutral environment like you say and I think it is so important because you know like you said with your sister being on a diet my mum and my grandma were every woman in my family was always on a diet so it was just normalized and I think it's amazing that you are really you know keeping yourself on track with your recovery and that your inspiration for that is so that your daughter is values her body for what it does rather than just what it looks like okay thank you yeah bless you I must admit when I was having a conversation with my colleague after I'd just witnessed that event at at work I remember I got on my high horse and I went off on one big time and I was just like we don't grow up hating our bodies at what age if these guys are three and four and they've started talking about their bodies already and this is unacceptable and then the next staff meeting came along and I was like right guys (laughs) and I went off on the tangent at staff meeting because we do it at work as well and I didn't realize until I'd been through eating disorder recovery how toxic workplaces can be Mm. I'm sat in the staff room and all the conversations all the time are this diet, that diet, this exercise, that diet. And again, that's in the rooms, you know, if you're having a little chat. The conversations are all about, oh, yeah, I need to do this. Oh, I need to burn this off. I need to do this exercise because I ate this. And it's just it's just made me so clued up that there are children in the room and I'm not having it anymore. Just if people are listening and maybe they're thinking, oh, you know, maybe I do use a bit of language like that around children. What sort of words or phrases would you suggest are better ways to describe food in your body so that people can start to integrate those in their conversations one of the first things i would always say is i've got such a pet hate for the whole good and bad food Mm. malarkey (laughs) that's not even a word for it because the second you start demonizing foods it's that's when it starts to become dangerous like i said there's nothing i i have chocolate every day nearly (laughs) because i want to because it's fun but the second you tell a child that you can't have that, you it's bad for you, they're either going to do one of two things, grow up terrified of that particular food or wait until you're not around and then binge on it. Yeah. Both of them equally as disordered as the other. So just teaching them that, oh, yeah, you can have that. Or at nursery, I remember, again, I'm just using work as an example because I do work in that environment. I remember one of them saying, can't we have biscuits for snack today? And I went, oh, biscuit sounds good, but actually we're going to have apple today because we've got loads of these really fresh apples that have just fallen off our apple tree. And it's really important that we eat them up. And how can we make it more fun then for you to eat apples? And there's, oh, can I make a smiley face on my plate with them? I was like, yeah, let's do that. That's fine, mate. Let's. And it's just, yeah, we can have biscuits, but actually we're going to have this now because, and just explaining, oh, it's fresh and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I hate, again, I need to go for a walk to burn off this. I despise 
it's just teaching again that we shouldn't be exercising because of punishment and we shouldn't be this case for all of us not just kids by the way actually thinking about it but we shouldn't be exercising for punishment and it's saying things like oh let's go for a walk actually to get some fresh air to look at nature and oh just get some air in our lungs and get out the house and just being really mindful about how we talk about exercise and how we're actually exercising ourselves and I think that talking about exercising like a oh we're just going outside to get some fresh air or whatever I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier about how eating disorder recovery is about being just in the moment because I think when you start realizing that exercises to feel good or to enjoy it or to spend time with your friends and family then you're actually in the moment rather than thinking okay I'm doing this because I'm burning off whatever I had earlier you just want it to be over because it's just torturous but as soon as you're saying this is for me this is some time for me I'm gonna go out for a walk with my family it's so much more enjoyable it is and it's I must admit I used when I was in a walk for that eating soda I used to be a big big runner and I thought after giving birth, I thought, oh, I'll just go for a run one evening. No, couldn't do it because my mind just clicked yeah. straight back. In, and I didn't realise until I got home, I was like, I have no idea what's just happened. Yeah. So I know that I quit that. And I discovered, bear with me on this, but I discovered online there's a thing called emo zumba. Mm-hmm. I was that emo kid. I was that gothic kid. And it's like a dance routine to all of that trashy music that I used to listen yeah. to as a teenager. And you know what? I did this little routine. It was only about 20 minutes, half an hour, but I had so much fun. There was lots of air guitar, lots of head whipping, and it was just pure cheese. But I loved it. And it was the first time I did that, something clicked, and I was like, oh, this is what exercise... I get it now. (laughs) But I just completely shook up my hot... All the exercise that I used to do, I just, nope, I'm just going to do something completely different here, completely new. And from that moment, I've just literally picked exercises that I want to do and that's fun and that makes me laugh and that I can have a laugh with and not use as punishment. Because the second it becomes punishment, it's the second it stops being fun. Exactly. I think I'll need to try that uh, emo zumba because I was a <laughs> chemical romance. Yes, me too. <laughs> Thank you so much for all your wisdom there. I enjoyed that conversation so much. I think we have a lot in common, so that was really nice. So just to wrap up today, I've been asking everybody this question, but as this podcast aims to motivate and inspire others struggling with eating disorders and reduce the stigma associated to give people the courage to leave that sort of eating disorder mindset behind, what would you say is your top tip or your best advice for somebody listening to gain the motivation to recover from their eating disorder? I know I touched on this earlier, but I think it it was a game changer for me. I remember when I was in day programme and I looked at what I wanted my life to look like. Now, this sounds very morbid, but bear with me. Imagine on your tombstone, if you like, it ain't going to say Zoe Burnett was great at dieting. (laughs) (laughs) Not I mean. I wanted to say Zoe Burnett full of life. She was a surfer because I wasn't concerned about what I looked like in the wetsuit. She lived a life, she loved a friend, she went out with the, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I want to be able to look back at my life when I'm on my deathbed or <laughs> when I'm 19, a care home, you know, whatever, and think, you know what? I lived my life. I loved my life. It was great. I don't want to look back and see missed opportunities. I don't want to look back and see things that I could have done, but I didn't because that eating disorder told me that I shouldn't. Wow, thank you. Yeah, I think that's such an important thing. I think just writing down maybe those... What you want your life to look... Not even like, not even achievements, not 
you know by the time I'm 50 I want to have this I think oh no just kind of like you say the characteristics you want people to think about you and the special times you want to have with people I think is that's really important so much more wonderful than anything an eating disorder could ever bring to you so thank you so much for coming on the podcast today Zoe it's been absolutely lovely to speak to you oh bless you no thank you for having me keep up the good work That conversation with Zoe was really important to me. As somebody that struggled with atypical anorexia, I think it is so important that we're raising awareness and having these conversations so that people know that eating disorders aren't defined by weight. Next week, I will be joined by Jenna Peters, who is an advocate for self-love and fitness of all body types. With Jenna, we talk about all things fat phobia, haze, and also finding enjoyment in exercise rather than just focusing on the aesthetics. If you look at someone, oh, well, you have this health condition because you're fat. No, because there are people who exist in smaller bodies with the same health condition, and you would never say that to them. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so please be sure to subscribe. Please also like, comment, and share this podcast with anyone you feel that may be struggling at the moment. Not only those with eating disorders, but also their loved ones, as this can be a difficult time for everyone. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, and this podcast aims to motivate and inspire others to embark their recovery journey. For further support, please visit the Beat or the First Steps website, or speak to your local GP. See you next week. Bye!